Hello and welcome to the Money Mitch Effect, a sports podcast, and I am your host, Mitch Michaels, and I promise you today's episode is going to be a great one. We got Todd Robinson, the speed burner, back for his second appearance on the show. We're going to talk NBA hoops action, some comments with LeBron James out of Cleveland, the pecking order in the Eastern and Western Conference, and a detailed talk about the all-star selections. The reserves came out yesterday. We dive into that, what we like and dislike. And at the end of our discussion, we switch over to tennis, where we're going to see the Williams sisters play for the Women's Australian Open title, and Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal on the men's side, two of the greatest players, probably the two greatest of all time on the men's side. They're going to do battle. We taped that interview before Nadal booked his spot, beating Grigor Dimitrov late last night in Classic. We talk about the prospects of a men's final there. It's going to be a good one. Here it is now. Todd Robinson, the speed burner on the Money Mitch Effect. Hope you're having a good Friday. Let's do this thing. All right, back now on the Money Mitch Effect. Rejoining the show a second time now. Todd Robinson, the speed burner. Todd, thanks for rejoining the show. Happy to be here again, Mitch, no doubt. So you're an official re- reoccurring guest now, so you've made that leap. Congratulations. I, I like that status, <laughs> recurring. We have a lot to talk about. We have a lot of NBA action to discuss. The last time we talked, a lot's changed. The All-Star Reserves, which we'll get to in a moment. But first, the big news out of the team, out of the city that's won the championship last year, the defending champs, the Cleveland Cavaliers, Todd. Not all is well in Titletown. They've lost six of their last eight games. And now we're starting to hear some things, especially out of their star player. LeBron James is very frustrated, fed up after the loss of Sacramento in overtime, saying that they need a playmaker, that they need to get better, they need to spend more is what we're hearing. So lots coming out. Obviously, the star player is not happy. Do you think he has a reason? Does he have a justified reason to be upset? Or is this just a lot of nothing from the King? The King tends to whine maybe a little bit too much for my personal taste and regarding his latest little uh, complaints you know there's there's three things here number one you got Love and you've got Kyrie so you got an all-time top 10 player in the history of the sport and you've got two all-stars borderline you know all league you know all NBA second teamer types second team third team types so that's number one. Number two, it's not like management is standing pat, and he was really, it was really a rant against management right. because they picked up Korver, what, two weeks ago or whatever it was. So granted, he's not a playmaker, and that's what LeBron was specifically talking about, but management is looking to tweak and improve. Number three, keep it in-house. If, if in spite of all that, the, the two all-stars you got as teammates, management's efforts already to help out the roster, you're still upset, then, you know, talk to them behind closed doors and don't, you know, don't create the media circus around your team. You're also insulting your other teammates publicly when you say, I've only got two guys here with me, really, and I need more. You're you're really, you know, and granted, we know that the teammates besides the big three there, yeah, you know, it's a little light, but that's what the salary cap does. You know, I, I, there's a lot to digest here, and I agree with pretty much all of what you just said. I can kind of understand the symbolic side of, you know, he did this last year and it worked. He wants to get the locker room to think we're not satisfied. I'm not satisfied, then, then you can't be either. But it is totally throwing his teammates under the bus when saying that, well, we need more help. Like, how would it feel to be in that locker room when the star player says, well, we're not good enough. These guys here aren't good enough for me. 
in town. They've spent, oh, they're committed to $127 million in salary. No one's spent more than them in the NBA in the past two years, and it's not even close. It reminds me a little bit of Shaq's out in Hawaii preseason show me the money about a dozen 13 years ago with the Lakers where you get these kind of prima donna superstars and they always want more and it's like they want perfection all around them. So, But the biggest thing I think is really behind closed doors because... You know, now you got you know so much more media and asking, and then they'll they're going to ask some of these second tier players, you know, Iman Shumpert and all, and Tristan Thompson. What do you think about LeBron's? Cl-? And you know, so now they have to address it, and it's like, hey, thanks, buddy, really appreciate this. I just don't think. I mean, you got to be reasonable here. They've spent this much money, and there is a trade deadline coming up. If you're going to make any more moves, that's the time to do it. I know he's trying to force their hand, but they're going to have to take their lumps like the rest of the NBA. The schedule's been somewhat tougher. They've lost some games. Uh, really, it's, you know, the thing I disagree with as much as anything, he says they need a playmaker, Todd. They need to play defense. They're scoring points in these games. They gave up 100-plus points to the Sacramento Kings on their home floor, a game when LeBron got a triple-double, two in a row, and they've lost. That's the end of the floor that they need to improve on. Yeah, as I noted to, as in, in an email to my, uh, to my Fantasy Hoops League just today, they lost to D-Cuz and the Drift. I mean, it's like mostly triggered on that roster. The <laughs> other thing that you out, said yeah. that triggered uh, another thing for me is that, you know, the trade deadline coming up, well, that his statements give gives Cleveland management less leverage in a deal because other teams look at them and now go, well, we know you're pretty desperate because you want to keep King LeBron <laughs> happy, so... You know, they might extract a little more ransom for any any deal they might pull with Cleveland. I mean, so, yeah. you know, it, it, it hinders their, you know, negotiating stance as well. So yet another reason to, you know, keep your mouth shut. I just, I don't it get house. it. He's a top ten player ever, like you said. This is just unnecessary drama. He can be at the top of any decision making that they need to make anyway. So who is he really calling out? They need to play better defense, 17th in the league. It's not going to cut it, but... You know, kind of going off that, Todd, I don't know what they really need to be worried about until June when we look at the Eastern Conference because we're still waiting for somebody, anybody to challenge them. And when I see Toronto in that two seed with a backcourt and that's it, you know, they lost to the Spurs the other night, Todd, when the Spurs rested half of half of their, their rotational players and still beat them in Toronto. I think that says just about all we need to know about the Eastern Conference. Yeah, it, the Eastern Conference, when you get down to kind of like 6, 7, 8, 9, they're pretty competitive, or maybe they've got the edge on the West, but there's no upper echelon teams in the East that really seem like they can challenge Cleveland anyway. So, you know, yeah, Toronto's kind of taken a few steps back since we last talked. Boston's gone backwards. Uh, the Knicks have kind of gone backwards, so... No one's really shining there, and um, even though they do seem to have, even though I, I would say the Wizards, actually, probably since it was December 13th last time I was on with you, I'd say the Wizards have probably stepped it up the most uh, in that six weeks or so. That's, that's very true. I think the way Wall's playing, the way Beal's playing, and he's, they're finally healthy. I think that's the first thing we wanted to see is those two on the court together. Wall and All-Star, Beal has been playing like an All-Star the last couple weeks, and I keep going back to who the next teams were supposed to be. We expected more out of Boston, but they just don't have the size inside. They just don't have any big body there. Indiana hasn't come together. The Bulls and Knicks are pretty much the disasters that we thought we'd see with all those egos. So you start to wonder who could possibly challenge this Cavs team, and 
That's why I think LeBron needs to cool it the most because they should be fine. I know they're gearing up for the finals, but there's a long time between now and then. They got guys that are coming back. I just don't see anybody in the East outside of maybe Toronto on a good shooting night that's even on the Cavs' radar. Yeah, and, and remember when he first rejoined the Cavs a couple seasons ago, they had a mid-season lull. Actually, it was more like early season lull, and they looked very sketchy, and they obviously righted that ship and uh, made the finals, even though they were hurt. I think you know, Love missed all that finals and, and, and most of those playoffs, I think. But, uh, yeah, so there's just... Basically, between the two of us, we have come up with a multitude of reasons why LeBron should just chill. Yeah, and I do want to ask you this question before we move on to the West, with how the East is looking, with how the Cavs are looking, and how many years LeBron may or may not have. Who do you think is going to be the next Eastern Conference team to make a finals? Whenever that is, who, whether it's next year, I doubt this year, two, three years from now, what squad would you pick off the top of your head to be the next Eastern Conference team to get to the finals? So I got I got one in mind. Now, that I think okay, it could well, be. you say the next team, and I think like bigger picture, four or five years out, I, I'm, it's like the Bucks. For That's me. that I, was I just, my team because you've got the big two there with the Greek freak, who basically people are calling a top five player in the league, which is pretty much accurate if you look at what he does. <laughs> at this point, it's accurate. It's phenomenal what he does, and then Jabari Parker. In somewhat in the Greek Freak's shadow has been really putting together a nice uh, season. He's actually shooting 40% from distance, which was one of the bigger knocks on him his first couple years in. And again, Thon Maker sitting on their bench as a rookie. I think four to five years from now, what an asset he will be to make a big three there as long as they can. Um, and they've, they drafted another gem that Malcolm Brogdon late. Yeah. So I think... So maybe the Bucks five years out, you know, in, in more immediate, I, I look at the East and I don't know on a more immediate basis who would be a threat. I, I honestly am drawing a blank. <laughs> if, 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 say, Cleveland slips in the next two to three years, is Milwaukee ready by then? I don't know. But um, I don't know who else really looks all that interesting. Right. It's an interesting argument to have. It shows you the balance of power. I'm with you, though. I think Milwaukee, long-term, could have something special there. If all, them, if all those guys stay healthy, they tweak the roster just a little bit, it could be something to see. As I talk with Todd Robinson on the Money Mitch effect, all right, Todd, Western Conference, we know the Warriors are the Warriors. They're playing very, very well. I keep scratching my head at what the Spurs are doing, and, and the Rockets I'll throw in there, too. What D'Antoni's done in Houston, uploading that team with Harden just having the season of his life. But I'll throw the Spurs in with them because it's another year. There's no Duncan. There's no veteran presence. Kawhi Leonard, the only all-star on that team. And here they are with the second-best record in the entire NBA. You know, and once again, they seem to have like four or five 15 to 20-minute-a-night guys who just really know their role, embrace their role, and in terms of roster construction, the management has made those pieces fit nicely. Right, and I would, I, would, I would take it a step further, Todd. They know their role, embrace their role, but if a starter goes down in a spot start, they can shine. They they're step, up. step they, up. They're not afraid of the spotlight. They have the confidence. And, you know, Pop, 
Uh, someone was saying the other day the Mount Rushmore of NBA coaches is probably the easiest Mount Rushmore of any kind of sports-related thing. Yeah. Because you've got Pop, you got Riley, you got Red Auerbach, and you got Phil Jackson. Yeah. No. And hands um, down. And so to the guy we're talking about now, Pop, I, I think he's a master. You know, Phil Jackson gets a lot of uh, credit for the psychology of it. I think Pop is right there because he really makes these guys believe in themselves because they're second-round you know, picks. They're guys who are drafted as Europeans who don't come over for three or four years. They get a few D-leaguers here and there, and they just they mold these guys into legit, quality NBA players, and it's you know, and and they're they, they're milking Manu Ginobili, you know. At his age <laughs> I know. I thought he was done P. four years ago. Yeah, they're still uh, productive on, on a nightly basis here and there too. I think it does speak volume to the culture, and everyone says culture in sports it's overused. But how else can you explain a system where the pieces are almost interchangeable? Now you need guys like Kawhi Leonard and Lamarcus Aldridge to put up your points and and produce as stars. But they have role players that embrace their role and shine and outshine stars in their role. And one thing we haven't even touched on is, is the fact that, you know, they got Pau Gasol to kind of replace Tim Duncan. And he has been injured recently and really not near as productive uh, before that. And yet they still sit there. You know, I think they're, what, 36 and, and 7? I think they have nine losses. But David Lee steps in. I mean, he has. Yeah, he, he, we thought Lee's career was washed, and he's playing some good minutes. Yeah, and they know how to milk the veterans who used to and be all-stars. How yeah. about Murray? I mean, another draft pick, the point guard, Murray, who comes in. He, they get him, what, 29th, 28th in the draft. Top 10 talent, another another gem in their laps, and, and I yeah, think it's he's, just special. Yeah, he slipped in the draft, and I actually was watching that name, and um, you know because he's a point guard with, with some athleticism and some size, so you're kind of surprised that a guy like that slips to the late 20s, but Spurs are there to halt the slide and uh, fix whatever kind of you know red flags were around him to make him fall uh, that far. So they're pretty firmly entrenched San Antonio in that two spot, but you have the Rockets Clippers at that 3-4 range, and then it's... You know, I look at the standings tied to Utah, who's risen all the way to fifth. Between these three teams, is any one of them ready to make that next step? I mean, the Clippers, we keep talking about, can they finally challenge Golden State? But the way the playoff picture is looking, they might not get out of the first round. Yeah, well, I mean, right now they would play Utah in the first round. and I Deadly think, matchup for them. Yeah. I don't you, think they you, want any part of that. you got Gobert, if you got Favors at full strength, and he has been kind of slowly eased back in after missing a, a good chunk of the start of the season. You talk about player development with uh, Milwaukee and Thon Maker. If the Jazz can get Dante Exum, you know, who came in as a, as a point guard with size and athleticism and... Um, He's proven to be a pretty solid, better-than-average defender. It's still kind of a work in progress other areas. But, uh, yeah, you know, if, if, he can, if he can lead them, I think Utah is one of the more interesting Western teams for this season to kind of make some noise in the playoffs and then going forward to really be a force in the West. Right, and could you imagine a Thunder Rockets first-round series? I mean, Jesus, the offense in that would be out of control. The playoff picture is starting to take shape. I think we're starting to see a top three, top four picture stabilize. You know, Memphis at seven, I got to give them props for hanging around as long as they have with their old fashioned ball. Marcus Saul's playing great. And Denver now in the eighth seed, although I don't know about Utah, but I'm not so sure. There's that big drop off at the eighth spot. I don't know that Denver's going to be there when the dust settles. 
You got Denver, Portland's, you know, same amount of wins, a couple losses behind them. Sacramento is actually legitimately fighting for the eighth spot, uh, as well as the Pelicans. And, I mean, really, realistically, the Timberwolves are what, you know, they're not that many games out of the eighth spot. No. So it's, uh, it's messy after the top seven in the West. It's very messy. And looking at those eight... We talked a lot about Minnesota the last time I was on. Now, remember, when the last time I was on, they were down 20 to the Bulls in, like, in the first eight minutes of the first quarter, then down 20 still midway through the second and ended up winning the game. I thought that might be a turnaround for them. They were 6-19 going into that game, and then since that game, they've been 11-11. Back to 500, yeah. Which, by the way, (laughs) 11-11, you know, that's a 500 record, which absolutely would lock you into the 8th spot. So, realistically, yeah, you've got about five teams battling for the 8th spot there. And, you know, the Pelicans, the Timberwolves, I think they're more of the fun, interesting teams to to battle for that spot. It'd be nice. Younger. It'd be nice to see Davis or Cousins in the playoffs. I still think Portland is going to get this spot. I I think there's too much talent there. It's not top flight talent, but it's enough to get the eighth spot in the Western Conference. I mean, they won a series last year. I don't think they've completely bottomed out the way they started their season this year. Right, right. And certainly C.J. McCollum, he's taken his game to a new level. Uh, I'll start didn't quite get the all-star uh, nod uh, for it, but and and when Lillard's been out, he, he's really stepped it up. But yeah, they they've stepped back a bit. But yeah, it's too bad that that either Cousins, Davis, or you know Carl Anthony Towns is one of two of those guys will not be in the playoffs. It is, or maybe all three. It could be all three. It yeah. is a shame. Still yeah. talking with Todd Robinson, speed burner on the money, Mitch effect. All right, Todd, let's get right into it. The NBA All-Star selections are out for the 2017 game. We knew about the starters. They were announced uh, a couple weeks ago, I believe, but today was actually the day, this Thursday, as we record this, was when the reserves got announced, and it was interesting. And I'll say this. The process changed this year. It's now a third vote each. The players, the fans, the media. Fans vote does not put the starter in. And there are a couple guys that would be in the game that aren't as a result of that. But Todd, looking at the big picture, what do you think of the roster selection, the process, and ultimately, are there some snubs that you just can't quite understand? I do like that process overall. I think you can't trust the fans. They, they vote with their heart and their favorite player, which is nice because it's for the fans, but also you want you know high-quality play rewarded. Certainly in terms of snubs, I think the one that just smacks you in the face really like three times it's so big, is Carl Anthony on Minnesota. He's at basically 23-12, a block and a half, shooting 50%, and three dimes a game. Now, okay, the Timberwolves have you know, underperformed a bit, lesser than probably their own expectations and fans' expectations, but is he an all-star? Yes. Is he having a better season than DeAndre, who made it? I think so. And, and you could even, if you wanted to throw a big man block rebound defender guy, Rudy Gobert could even take DeAndre's spot, I think. So the process itself, you're, all, you're never going to have people completely happy. It, there's, you can do fans, you can do players, media. A lot of players, as Steve Kerr said, made a mockery of it because a lot of the role players voted for themselves. The media and is going to have people that don't like, you, yeah. you know, these players, <laughs> they just don't. 
I understand you're having a little fun with it, but you know you, you got to take it somewhat serious. And like certain guys are automatic all-stars. Like when LeBron and Durant don't end up on some ballots, I mean, what? I mean, what are we talking about then? I is mean, that? Yeah, they did. They, that was the other thing. Is that guys like Westbrook? Westbrook might have been on all of them, but a few stars like Harden or, or Durant or Bryant didn't even make it on every ballot. So that and, shows you how serious these guys were taking it. Yeah, so, and that's disappointing. So it's like, who can you trust, you know? It's one thing for, you know, 10-year-old fans to, to <laughs> vote with their heart, yeah. but if players vote and, you know, as a joke with it, you know, it's like, geez, you, as a commissioner, you scratch your head and you just kind of look at these knuckleheads. So I think we can talk about the starters, Todd, and I know we'll start with the Western team first. Westbrook not being a starter is ridiculous. I think it's comical. And Curry is the guy there if you want to do it that way. Now, I would argue that you could even, the way it's gone where there's no more centers starting, it's just front court, back court, why not just do two forwards, two guards, and then one could be either or at that point. I mean, a lot of teams play three guards anyway. So that could be a void to fill when you have three of the most popular, most high-performing guys that are at the same position. But that semantics aside, Todd, all the starters in the game West and East were going to be on the team. So it wasn't like they were stealing spots a la that right. Kobe Bryant fell last year that might not have made the all-star team if it was based on merit. But from the Western Conference, again, no centers starting on either team, Todd. Three centers on the bench. thought that was a little interesting. Not completely un undeserved. I mean, I kind of consider Davis as more of a power forward type in his natural position. Sure. But I do think that DeAndre is the one guy that I would not have put on the team. I would lean Gobert over Carl Anthony Towns, although you made a great point for Carl Anthony Towns. Gobert is a defensive rim, blo rim blocker, he's a protector. And the Jazz, I know we don't look at team performance all the time, but they got the best defense in the NBA. So what he's doing is effective. Oh, and I think that's no how doubt. you can judge it. Yeah. I think, yeah, if you, if you want to go strictly replace DeAndre with a similar type player, yeah. not only is Rudy the guy, but I think he's having a better season than DeAndre. I, I just, the, the cat numbers are just so mm -hmm. impressive that you're like, really, what needs to be done? But then again, Cousins in the past has posted these kinds of numbers, 23-12, and not made it season after season. So... It gets down to that old, you know, are you just soaking up numbers uh, and not really playing team ball? But really, you know, Dikas, Cat, they're all stars. And Gasol, he does deserve it. I mean, that's the thing. It's like he's having a career year. Gasol. It's hard. It's hard for people not to include him. I know you run into the there, numbers game. There's, but there's no way Gasol's been kicking butt this year. Memphis. I mean, that's impressive, seven games over 500, and it's not, they've lost Con. they lost Conley for a little stretch there. Um, it's not an overly impressive roster by any stretch no. outside it's of it's like Gasol. the same roster for the last so five years. I have zero qualms, you know, Gasol, he's averaging a career high scoring this year. He's, you know, 30-something. He, he added the three-point shot, too. He added the three <laughs> in a big way. He had five threes last night. And I think I read somewhere where he had five threes in his career before this season. Unbelievable. So it was five to ten last night. He had a career high forty-two last night. So he's, yeah, he's just such a smart, savvy, solid ball player. The wonderful asset for a roster. So I don't want to get into the team discussion of success because I don't think that should totally matter. But I do think that you look at some of the Warriors players. There's now going to be four on the team with Clay and Draymond. It's hard to argue that they don't belong in the game based on how while they're playing and how well the team's playing. I know the numbers might not reflect that, but they're having some pretty pretty good seasons. 
You run into the argument, though, with point guard because Paul, Chris Paul didn't make it. Damian Lillard didn't make it. You know, those are two big names that are on the outside looking in, but you have a couple start, starting in the game. Westbrook had to make it. It gets dicey. Yeah, well, you know, CP3 has missed 11 games. They've played about 47, so he's missed about a quarter of the season. Um, his numbers were certainly nice, and his production and his overall value to the team, he, he hasn't slipped a lot. He, he's really kind of held his own, so it's, it's got to be just a, a games played there. And then Lillard has missed a few games. I mean, you look at these guards. Now, Clay would be the guard that, as you mentioned, four is kind of a lot from one team. Clay's certainly the most one-dimensional of the four Golden State Warriors who made it. Right. So he would be, I think, the odd man out if you wanted CP3 or Lillard to take his place. Well, I think the other side of that is, do we want just basically all point guards as your reserves? Because it's a two guard, and there weren't too many. I think he's the only one just about that, you know, made the team in that natural position. So it gets dicey. I mean, CJ McCollum, you mentioned him. Maybe right. he could have got that spot. And look at Gordon Hayward, who's probably the last guy to make this team. He's having a good year. I, I don't know. I, I'm okay with this selection. He's obviously all-star worthy, but I could be talked into him not making it. The problem, again, is, Todd, if you take him out, do you just put in another point guard, another center, or are we building a roster? Are we building just the best go? It could be all guards and centers. Yeah, and I tend to think for the all-star game, because you look at the way it's played, it, and it's even more carefree and casual than in years past, the players take it as a fun exhibition and a time to play with some really fine athletes and skilled athletes and have fun. So to be overly conscious of position and roster balance, obviously you need a little balance, but it shouldn't be an, an overriding theme, especially if you have a guy who's maybe at a position that's already overloaded on the roster, but the guy's just having too good a year. Right. So we'll have to see. But that's how the Western Conference is shaking out to the East, where the drama actually does pick up. As I talk with Todd Robinson on the Money Mitch Effect, Todd, the starters, we mentioned DeRozan, Kyrie, LeBron, Butler, and Giannis. No real complaints there. Reserves came out, and one of the big names that didn't make it, we'll start there, Joel Embiid, who has been remarkable when he's played. But he doesn't get in. Probably the last guy and the guy that everyone's going to bring up that made it over him was Paul Millsap. Do you have a problem with this, or do you think the voters and the committee got it right? Well, we talked about CP3 missing roughly a quarter of the season. Embiid has missed 14 out of 44 games, so you're talking basically he's missed a third of the season. And because that minutes restriction, which was really kind of tight the first, say, uh, month and a half, two months of the season, he's only averaging 25 minutes when he does play, 25.3. So, you know, that that's just a floor time because really... You can see with Philly's record and all, he's made them a better squad, and certainly he's shown like unreal all-star talent in terms of a big man who can do so much, even you know pop from distance. But um, I think I think it's fair if it's a third of the games and he's not playing 30 minutes a night. And I've said I don't really agree with that third that minutes restriction. I think once a guy's healthy, you just let him play. Yeah, but um, you know, in Millsap, he's still he's still a rock solid guy. Um, the numbers are kind of flat to maybe <laughs> down a tad from last year, but you know, he's a solid player, knows how to play the game. 
I don't have too much of an issue. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you look at you look at what this game is, as you as you alluded to. It's for the fans. It should be exciting. It's hard to keep a guy like Embiid off the game. He's an exciting young player. The fans would want to see him. He came third. He was third in the front court voting, but by the by how it was broken down, he just missed out on a spot. So he was right there. The fans wanted to see him. Millsap, and he's gonna get persecuted. This is part of the the game I don't like is that the guy that takes the last spot, it's like a personal, like, he did this to you. He just got selected. It's nothing that Millsap did. And his game just happens to be kind of flashless. It's not flashy at all. Complete, that's a, yeah, yeah. He's a solid lunch pail But it's guy. effective, and he's played well, and he's earned this right before. He, he's not flashy, but no. you know what? He's well-rounded. He, he, he actually does a lot of things. And I'll tell you, back to Embiid, going to the numbers, if he played five more games and his minutes per game was 20, just 28 to 29 a game, I think you got to kind of put him on there. Because as you noted, you know, the fans are excited about him. He's got this new nickname, which is so funny, The Process. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, he's got Philly. Philly's got uh, three teams below them in the Eastern Conference with worse records, which, you know, last year, the year before, and it seems the year before that, they were just far and away the worst team in the league. So, you know, he's, he's really had an impact on that right. roster. Sixers-Cavs first round could be kind of exciting now to get Embiid out there. I don't think they'd actually do anything with it, but Embiid in, that, in the playoffs would be fun to see. I do they wanna, have some work to do if they oh, want yeah. to grab the eighth oh, yeah. spot. It's, but, still, uh, it's still a ways away. But yeah. I do want to have to play him 40 minutes a game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe 45, I don't know. But looking at a couple other names on this list, Paul George makes the team. He's had a great year. Some people are feeling like it should have been Carmelo's spot. We have no weight in Carmelo in an All-Star game for the first time since 0304, their rookie years. But oddly enough, Todd, I'm fine with it. I mean, I, Wade would have won the fan vote, is not having an All-Star year. I think they got this one right. Carmelo, you could argue, but what is he really accomplishing this season in New York? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a mess in New York. Um, it was a little better the last time we talked, and then... Phil makes a few comments that, that, you know, ruffle feathers on the team. And then uh, Porzingis goes down, and he hasn't really come back strong since. They need him 20 and 10 and blocking shots and just kind of doing what he does. And he fires up that fan base. And without, you know, a healthy Porzingis, you know, it's really yeah. kind of a blah team to watch. It's a lot of old retreads. <laughs> he could have made so. it, too. Porzingis was close to making the All-Star game. Not necessarily a snub, but he's knocking on the door. Again, if he'd have stayed healthy and didn't miss those games and then come back with a lot of marginal games, I think he's right in the conversation, maybe over Millsap even, maybe. no doubt. We have a lot of point guards to talk about of reserves. John Wall makes it, Kemba Walker, Isaiah Thomas. No real complaints on either of those teams. It's Kemba's first appearance, and he's, he's been balling. He has his team playing well. We know about Kyle Lowry, we know about John Wall, how good they've been doing, and then Isaiah Thomas, who he seems like he gets possessed in the fourth quarters of these games. I mean, he just takes over as good Isaiah as anyone in the league. Isaiah Thomas is phenomenal. Now, what is he, 5'9"? I mean... That might be generous. It could be an NBA listing 5'9", which right. we know so, what that means. So you're basically, at this point, wondering, has any player his height or shorter been better than him? Now, Calvin Murphy was a mm, great player for question. a long time. But beyond Calvin Murphy, and you're going back to the Rockets, uh, 70s, 80s, <laughs> yeah. um, 
You know, because the other five nine guys in, in the shorter, you know, they're nice little players. You know, Muggsy Bogues was solid, Spud but, Webb, but Muggsy Robinson. could never <laughs> score like Isaiah's doing right now. Earl Boykins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, forgot know. about Earl Boykins. But, uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. You just, night after night, he just buckets. And he dimes, too. He does. He can do it all. Confident guy. Sacramento and Phoenix. What are you doing? <laughs> what, what are you, what, how do oh, you get boy. rid of this guy? How does he? How is he on his third team already? Some people can't get over the visual of, you know, a guy who's shorter than your GM <laughs> right. as being, you know, a truly special, valuable player, and you just keep waiting for, you know, the hindrances of that size. But, hey, he's, he's a rare, special athlete who overcomes those hindrances, and you don't run into those every day. So you almost, you almost give a hall pass to management somewhat, because it's just so out of the norm at his height doing what he does. It is. Well, it's phenomenal to watch in Boston. If they can make one more move, maybe they're the team. But in all, all honesty, respect to Isaiah Thomas for what he's done. And Kevin Love makes the team as well, rounding out the all-star roster. Well, Todd Robinson, speed burner on the money, Mitch Effect. Before I let you go, we got to talk tennis. And we weren't planning on talking it again before the final on this show. But we're going to throw it back to 2008. Are we going to have our first major final weekend where we have the Williams sisters and Federer and Nadal in final mm-hmm. matchups? Three of the four have already booked it. Yeah, and, and you know, the, an amazing stat is 2008, that Wimbledon, that's also the only time that those four names just all made the semis, which really surprised me, Venus, Serena, and then Roger and Rafa. Well, there's two different things. you got the women and the men. We'll talk the women first. There are, and I want to be polite, but some women with very fragile psyches on the WTA Tour. That does not include Serena, and that does not include Venus. And a few others, you know, Sharapova is a relatively tough mental customer. She's I put Azarenka you know, in there when she's suspension. on. Azarenka has some confidence, but then again, that's, those are two girls that aren't playing right now. Yeah. So really, you got a tour full of just, you know, they just can't seem to... I don't know what it is, but they're just so fragile. And these Williams sisters, they're tough. You know, at 35 yeah. and 36 years old, Coco Vandeweghe was hot as a pistol, and Venus, you know, put her in her place in the semis. So hat tip to those two. Yeah, um, I would say Serena, we know the story. We know how dominant she is, as good as anyone who's ever played the women's game. Venus is just, on the flip side of the, what I agree with you with Coco as a pistol and has her emotions up and down, Venus is just a pro, and we knew she was going to be there all match. We knew she was going to be consistent, and she just weathered the early storm. Lost played, the tiebreaker lost and the tie didn't break, get rattled. Didn't get rattled, played smart tennis. It wasn't flashy. She's not who she was in the past, a 36 who can be, but she just played efficient tennis. It's a good story, and it does highlight some of the best and, as you said, worst parts of the women's game is that it's a good story that a player like that can make that run, but... You know, you'd like to see the younger talent kind of push these people to the side. I mean, it's just true. Look, it's, you want to see Venus, younger talent push everyone to the side yeah, in any sport. They're 35 and 36, and, you know, if you're, w, if you're the head of the WTA right now, you're a little nervous because you can't successfully market a tour where your top, say, five ranked players in the world can't consistently get deep into the biggest tournaments and show that kind of consistency where they then develop rivalries and backstories. 
if it's always like you know one handing the baton off, you know, Halep here, you make a final. Well, hey, you make Rukerusa, a second you round, make maybe. A final. <laughs> Bouchard, you make a final. You're constantly handing the baton off, and then once they let go of the baton, they have trouble getting out of the third round of a major. You know, it, it's it really creates marketing dilemmas, and it, and it hurts the sport. So. You hope that mm -hmm. that can be fixed. Well, all the respect in the world to both Venus and Serena for making the final playing against each other again. It's hard for me to think that Venus is going to win. I'd like to see it. It'd be a great story because I sincerely doubt she ever gets back here. Serena is just too tough. She's a better player, younger, and I just think it's going to be the difference. I, I don't know how Venus can contend her, with her, her whole, sister's power. Her whole professional career, <laughs> she's basically been just that much better than her sister. There's a few occasions, uh, there's two slam finals where Venus did beat Serena, but I think she's won uh, another six against her sister. This will be, I think, their ninth meeting in a slam final, so... Yeah, I mean, Serena, look, you're talking about the best of all time. I mean, the girl takes off from U.S. Open to the Aussie Open. And still is and number she's one. 35 and a half. Yeah. And, you know, she only slips one spot in the rankings and then comes back and kicks everybody's butt. You know, so she's, you talk about outliers. Wow, that's an outlier. Yeah, well, it should be fun to watch. And then on the men's side, Todd, Federer beat Stan last night in an epic five-set match and. We can talk about how Rogers owns Stan, 19-3 and three now, head-to-head. -head. But this was a guy who's taken, what, five, six months off the tour, played the Hopman Cup, which really isn't that serious, and gets back to the final. I know things open up in the draw. He didn't have to play Murray. But just the accomplishment of walking into a Grand Slam as a 17 seed and getting back to the final is worthy of itself. I think outlier is the theme here because, <laughs> once insane. again, um, you know, Roger Federer is just on a different plane in the tennis world you know joker was so hot for so long and people wondered if he would you know get to that 17 uh, number that that roger has in slams and will be going for 18th i mean i did honestly i wrote an atp recap uh in early december and i, I kind of dismissed i'll be dead honest dead wrong i kind of dismissed roger i kind of dismissed rafa as you know father time kind of you know just doing his thing uh, with both of them, um, especially Rafa not making a quarter, quarterfinal in a slam all year, and, and look at them now. So hat tip to both. Um, I don't know what to say. Roger is just, he has so many weapons. He's just so smooth and fluid, mentally, you know, strong as a rock, confident, um, and he, he can make those little adjustments, you know, what it and, and you look, he's not as fast as he was. No. You see the diminished athleticism somewhat. Certainly. But, um, you know, he's just, he's so good, he's so smart that he, he can overcome it with immense, incredible skill. People don't talk enough about how hard it is to make those adjustments. The match is going on. There's no timeouts. I mean, you can maybe take a medical timeout at a changeover, but you're playing, you're isolated. Your coach isn't right there next to you calling out plays. And, and as we've seen, if you don't make those adjustments fast, it could snowball in a hurry and the match is over. It's interesting Better you, can do that. It's interesting you bring up the adjustments, yeah, because I was hearing our Tennis Channel uh, analyst, Lindsay Davenport, an ex-Grand Slam champion, talk about the Coco Vandeweghe-Venus match, and she talked about Coco not making any adjustments returning mm. Venus's serve. Venus was serving hot. And Coco really didn't make any adjustments to her return strategy. And as a guy who's played some sports, it is tough when you're in the moment. 
to think big picture. What do I want to? What am I doing wrong? What is he? That is tough when you're in the trenches and you're just thinking, I gotta return this serve. I gotta hit a solid first serve. I gotta get a first serve in. I gotta get my backhand. It's it's it's. He's picking on my backhand. You know, I gotta fix that. And it's hard to keep big picture strategic mm -hmm. things in mind. And Serena talked about how she went back to notes. She used to write notes for herself uh, earlier in her career, kind of stopped for a while. And in this Aussie, she's back to doing yeah. that. And that just shows you even the best of the best, you know, they need little help to keep the big picture and strategy in mind and stuff. So now we look at Rafa versus Dimitrov, and this is going to air after that match takes place. I'm not discounting Dimitrov's chances. It's hard to say that he can finally make that leap. It's one of those things where, Todd, we have to see it to really believe it. Can he get to a final? Can he beat Nadal? Maybe, but we just haven't seen it before. Nadal, this tournament, has looked rejuvenated, and he's looked a little bit quicker. Not the same. A lot like Fed isn't moving quite the same, but he still has that heart of a champion. It has not been easy, and when the going gets tough, any tennis player all time, it's hard to bet against Rafael Nadal. Oh, yeah. I, I have a friend, very knowledgeable uh, a tennis uh, fan friend. Um, I've been drafting Grand Slams with him for 15 years, and uh, he's always said if he had one guy to play a match on a neutral surface, it would be Rafa. He's just, he's such a battler. You know he's never going to throw in the towel, and he's got a lot of freaking skill and a lot of raw athleticism, and you, you put the mental... The raw athleticism and the skill all together, and then the weirdness of such a heavy topspin shot. You know, he he's uh, he's kind of got the mojo back. And you know, Dimitrov is a great athlete. He's very fluid and smooth. Aesthetically, he's kind of like Federer. He's pretty to watch. He's a he's a prettier player than Nadal, um, and he's he's kind of constructing points better and kind of has a, a strategy and a vision. Whereas before. Uh, guys have talked about how he had just so much talent and, and didn't kind of know what shot to play and when to play it. But, you know, to put it together against Rafa tonight, yeah, uh, Rafa's the favorite in the match, and um, I got to say, I'm not tempted to bet the underdog here. Yeah. No, it's, it's tough. When Rafa's playing at his peak, he's hard to beat. Now, will he get to that peak again? Probably not, but if he gets close enough to it and he gets into a battle, Dimitrov cannot fall behind early. I mean, the Milos match, Milos Ranić was straight sets. Milos had no business losing that second set. Rafa stole it from him at the end. Now, that's the kind of pressure that Nadal puts on you by fighting for every point. Dimitrov can get a set early, get to 1-1 one, one going into 3, maybe things look a little better, but it's going to be Dimitrov, tough. If Dimitrov, you know, Nadal has left more balls short in the last, you know, 18, 24 months than he has maybe, you'd say, in, in the prime of his career... You know, Dimitrov, just ha you have to really seize the opportunity. I watched, I didn't watch a lot of the Raonage match. I watched Nadal play Monfi. You talk about great athletes. Mm -hmm. And Monfi, you just, you, you want to crawl into his head because you, you just, you got to play aggressive when you're playing top tier players. You got to get more aggressive. And Monfi wasn't. And it was a relatively routine match, though Monfi got the, the third set. And so with Dimitrov, yeah, you've got to be aggressive whenever possible. You know, if you're going to lose, go out firing. You know, yeah. don't push the ball back and let him bully you all match. Um, but I don't think Dimitrov, I think he will play smart. And I think it's great that he's back in a semi. He made the semis of Wimbledon in 2014. 
took a set off of Djokovic, who won that tournament eventually, um, won that match in four. But uh, it's good to see him back mm -hmm. um, because him and Raonic and Kane Shakori, you know, when the big four finally step away, Whenever they will, yeah, they will be seizing the mantle along with Alexander Zverev and a few others. Yeah, well, you know, the last time Dimitrov's one in seven against Nadal all the time, but he won their last matchup in Beijing last year, Masters. That's really where his resurgence started. He, he finished strong at the end of the season, started out hot this year, but I do like Nadal in this matchup. And I'll put it to you, though, picks for the champions down under. Aussie Open 2017, who's hoisting the trophies. One's a little easier, I think, to pick it, than the other. You think so? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I will go with Serena with the easy one. Um, Venus is a sentimental favorite. And yeah, I really like Venus. She's a very classy lady. But I think Serena takes that, of course. You know, a Rafa Fed final, I think, and it's just a weird hunch, that Fed will find a way to take down his nemesis, assuming Rafa can take out Dimitrov tonight. I, I think Fed will somehow find a way. Um, I know that, you know, pattern of getting it high to high and, and top spin to Fed's backhand creates problems for anybody with a one-hander. It's just, just physically, just try to wave your, your arm, <laughs> a backhand, about eye to forehead yeah, high. Yeah, it's not easy. And you can't create power. You, you can't really direct your shot with a whole lot of action. It's a tough shot to hit. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but Fed, you talk about, we talked about making adjustments, and I, I think he'll have some kind of a strategy, some kind of Fed magical genius to take his 18th, which I'm shocked as heck I'm saying that. Yeah. Well, it's a weird dynamic because I think Fed admitted that, you know, Roger admitted that, he played Rafa so many times early in his career on clay, and he thinks that might have impacted the way he played against him on other surfaces. As biased as I am, I was a Federer fan in the Nadal rivalry. Nadal, at his peak, I can honestly admit, was able to beat Federer when they were head-on, head-on. But both these guys have slipped now. I think the dynamics weirdly changed. You've seen a little bit that's, of slippage. I think that's so it's, why... it's hard to say what's going to happen. And I think Fed could, like you said, find a way and outsmart him and, on the court. And I think that's why I had the funny little hunch is because yeah. this it's isn't not 2007, it's not 2008. It, they're both a little little on the other side of the hill. And I just think that given a slight decline in both of their games, I think it's Federer who with his magical artistry versus Nadal's brute force, power, athleticism, what have you, I think that gives him more of the edge. But then again, Rafa, talk about a guy who finds a way to win. So, you know, who knows how it will exactly play out if that indeed becomes the final. Right, still got to worry about Dimitrov. But, yes. hey, well, Todd Robinson, Speedburner, thanks for coming on the show again. Speedburner on Sports, where you can check out all your stuff. Speedburnonsports.com, exactly. And uh, Twitter is at Speedburner. And it's Speedburner, no vowels, S-P-D-B-R. All right. Vowels are overrated. They can, yeah, they kind of are. They kind of are. Well, next time we get you on here, we'll have a couple new Grand Slam champions, and we'll be, I think, approaching Costa NBA playoff time. It's going to be a good spring, I think. We're ready for some meaningful basketball games now. Yeah, we'll take note of the NBA standings where they're at right now and see how things shake out uh, between now and uh, my next visit to the Money Mitch Effect. All right, Todd, thanks again for coming on. No doubt. Big thanks to Todd Robinson for coming on the show, chopping it up with hoops and tennis action. 
And I do want to bring back, since Todd is our only guest on the show today, and I got a little time to chat with you all, I want to bring back the segment of Mitch's Three Things. It's basically just an excuse for me to talk about some other things we didn't get to cover on the show. And we'll start with tennis. You know, it is going to be Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal in the men's final. Nadal beat Grigor Dimitrov in a five-set classic that took place after the taping of the show. Australia time tends to do that in the middle of the night. But big props to Grigor Dimitrov. He gave Nadal everything he could handle. Just not quite there yet. He'll be there. I am going to go on a limb and say Dimitrov will eventually get to a Grand Slam. The way he played Nadal last night was spectacular. Can he sustain that? We'd like to think so for the future of the men's game, but Nadal, the heart of a champion, maybe the best heart that sport tennis has ever seen, and he gets to play Roger Federer, who, full disclosure, was an idol of mine growing up as someone that played a little tennis, looked to Federer the way he played the game, the way he you know, exuded class in winning and in losing, but I have grown to appreciate and respect Nadal more and more as I've gotten older. This rivalry uplifted the sport of tennis to heights it had never seen, and my advice to tennis fans out there, whether you're a Federer fan and a Dahl fan, or if Djokovic or Murray is your guy and you're a little upset that he's not here, just appreciate this, because we may never see this again. It's arguably the greatest rivalry in all, of, in all of these sport, maybe all of sports, it's right up there. But just appreciate the fact that these two guys are going to get to go at it one more time. If Nadal wins, the major count is 17-15, to 15, as Andy Roddick pointed out. Nadal, at that point, will be the second greatest of all time. He'll break the tie with Pete Sampras. And he'll now be in a discussion of, can he catch Federer? You know, the French Open, Nadal's won nine times, is coming up. He'll be right there, ready to make it maybe within one. And he might throw his hat in the race as being the greatest of all time. But if Roger Federer wins as a 17 seed, as somebody that's taken six months off, if he wins, gets his 18th major It'll go down as one of the, if not the greatest, accomplishment of his career. And it'll probably cement his legacy as the greatest of all time. It'd be pretty tough for anybody to catch 18 majors. Just a remarkable feat there. I'm excited, as I hope all of you are. I do want to talk uh, another thing. My second point here is the NFL Pro Bowl. They decided to do a little differently. They had a skills competition. They added on dodgeball, a drone catching game, which was weird, a relay race. Look... I know it's kind of cheesy, it's a little corny at times, but it's all about adding interest, and especially for the younger demographic, they want to see some fun activities there. I think it's good to try different things, even if it doesn't work. It's exciting to an extent, it was a little different, but we want to see that the players care. That's the biggest thing there. And by the looks of it, they did, you know, because these guys are competitors at the heart of it. And whether it's a pass-catching competition, throwing, hitting targets, or a relay race, the players want to win. They want to beat their contemporaries. And it was something different. It was something different, but it was something competitive. And I think it was good to see the players actually care and try out there. So who knows what the direction of this game is, if it will have a long-term shelf life. But it's nice to see something refreshing there, whether it lasts or it doesn't last. Props to the NFL Pro Bowl players for investing in this new idea. And then lastly, the NHL All-Star Game is this weekend out here in Los Angeles, the City of Angels, where I currently reside. Skills competition is tomorrow. Sunday is the actual game. Really excited there. I'm going to actually try to catch out the skills competition because you want to see, again, players actually caring, players actually trying. And this is the first All-Star Game where the new generation, we always talk about the scoring boom, about these new guys, how it's a great time to be a young hockey fan, 18, 19, 20-year-olds are taking over the league and not just 
coming into the league, but like Ovechkin and Crosby a decade ago are actually dominating in some aspects, scoring a lot of goals, becoming big factors on these teams. This is the first All-Star game where you're starting to see all these players qualify for it on merit. You're getting to see all these players compete. And that's something that I think we, we shouldn't take for granted as hockey fans. This is the first All-Star game where we're going to see the Matthews, the the uh, top players in the league that are also young players play. Connor McDavid leading the league in scoring, the third youngest player ever, trailing only Gretzky and Crosby in youth. And look, that says it all right there. But it's time to see what these guys can do on the national stage. The fastest skater, hardest shot competition, things of that nature. They're exciting to see. I know I, as a young hockey player, can only dream of shooting a puck 105 miles an hour. Never quite could measure up to that, but I digress. It's fun to see that. It's three on three. It's exciting. So savor that, hockey fans, because it also signifies we're at the halfway point. The games are going to matter in there. And we talked about the NBA All-Star Game on the show. These are the times of types of plays that really signify how important this season is. And the games are going to start to be meaningful when we resume them. So I'm excited to hopefully catch some festivities in Los Angeles. Could think of uh, a couple of places where the players might want to uh, hang out in Los Angeles. Hopefully they, they are on their best behavior, but we know how that can be sometimes. Well, that was the Money Mitch effect. Hope you didn't mind me rambling a bit at the end. And two shows this week. We're going to get back to three hopefully next week now that the Australian Open grind is back down to it. As some of you know, my normal job is at Tennis Channel. Kind of uh, some sleepless nights there, but I wouldn't have it any other way. We're going to crown two major champions. A blast from the past. Will Serena break the record, break the tie with Steffi Graf? Federer get 18 and Dahl get 15. Is Venus Williams going to defy the odds and win another major for the first time in nearly a decade? We'll have to see there. But thanks again for listening. You can find all the episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play by just searching Money Mitch. I want to thank again Todd Robinson for coming on the show, Tim Adams for supplying the beats, Brian Nelson for supplying the logo. And remember, you can always catch me on Twitter, MoneyMitchM21, for some sports and other takes. That's going to do it for today's show. It's a Friday in January. If you're on the East Coast, bundle up, enjoy whatever weather the Mother Nature and the weather gods are throwing at you. If you're on the West, it's a little chilly here. You know, enjoy it. Try to, you know, bring your polo game out, you know, your fleece game. You don't get to do that too much on the West Coast. But in all seriousness, have a good weekend. Celebrate it however you choose. I am Mitch Michaels. Thanks again for listening to The Money Mitch Effect. I'll see you down the road. Keep watching sports. Whatever your favorite sport is, just enjoy it.